0: Thank you very much, Gary Michaels. You're right, we do have two eminent guests with us. We have Ambassador John McDonald, retired. He's Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Multitrack Diplomacy. He's been on the show before. Welcome, Ambassador McDonald from Washington.
1: Thank you very much, Ernie. Great to be with you.
0: And the listeners can access your website at uh, www.imtdinstituteformultitrackdiplomacy.org. And we also have, as another eminent guest, a professor, Emeritus Professor John Ziegler, formerly of the Patterson International School or the Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And John Ziegler, welcome again to the show. Thank you, Ernie. And I want to thank both of you for all your guidance and mentorship of my path on alternative dispute resolution in the last quarter century. It's been uh, instrumental in my understanding. And the topic today is a very, uh, of course, a contemporary topic that affects the whole world. It's named the negotiation processes in the Middle East. Are they in accord with the needs of the people, what happened to the Oslo Accords? I want to mention to the listeners that um, in preparing for the show over the weeks, uh, both of our guests have been uh, commented quite uh, understandably to make sure that the uh, the uh, issue the process was addressed correctly. I was always looking for a hook, and uh, today, November twenty second happens to be the. Uh, Anniversary of the passing of Resolution 242, a critical resolution from the United Nations that was passed on November 22nd, 1967, on today's day, today's show. And that just happened by happen chance. It was not, I wasn't that clever to pull that together. So there must be a reason we're doing the show today. I just want to give our listeners a quick um, overview. I'll just take a couple of minutes. I'm going to turn it over to Ambassador McDonald, and he and Professor Ziegler will um, have a as subject matter experts um, share their thoughts on the processes. I learned from Ron Fisher, the great Canadian uh, who's now in the United States. I met him last year. He's a member of Ambassador McDonald on that panel. He said, before you talk about issues, why don't we talk about how we talk about issues? And that's the focus of this show, which is the processes. I'd originally wanted to do it on the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, but you're right, Ambassador McDonald, that was not something that was resonating with people. But you mentioned to focus and starting point on the Oslo Accords, which Professor Ziegler agreed with. As listeners may or may not remember, the uh, first mediator by the United Nations uh, Count Bernadotte from um, Sweden was assassinated on September 17th, 1948, and there's been assassinations since then. We know of President Sadat, President Rabin, <clears throat> wondering why there's violence when that occurs. In order to give a, a context to the various histories of the negotiations, con- modern-day negotiations, I want to read a short paragraph from President Carter's uh, recent book, Palestine, Peace on Apartheid, where he says in his summary... Since the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty was signed in 1979, much blood has been shed unnecessarily and repeated efforts for a negotiated peace between Israel and her neighbors have failed. Despite its criticism from some Arab sources, this treaty stands as proof that diplomacy can bring lasting peace between ancient adversaries. Although disparities among them are often emphasized, the 1974 Israel-Syrian withdrawal agreement, the 1978 Camp David Accords, the Reagan Statement of 1982, the 1993 Oslo Agreement, the Treaty between Israel and Jordan in 1994, the Arab Peace Proposal of 2002, the 2003 Geneva Initiative, and the International Quartet's round roadmap all contain key elements that could be consolidated if pursued in good faith. <clears throat> and he goes on with suggested solutions, but we're on process. So with that introduction, and thank you for bearing with me, but I wanted to give the listeners that broad introduction. If I can turn over to you, Ambassador McDonald, for your uh, opening comments.
1: Well, thank you, Ernie. I think you're very courageous to take on this subject at this point in time, and I appreciate uh, your invitation to be a part of the process. Uh, For your listeners' information, I uh, lived as a diplomat uh, eight years in the Muslim world, and I also was invited uh, in 1988, and again 1998, by the Foreign Ministry of Israel, to train uh, their diplomats in conflict resolution and peace-building skills. So I've had uh, some little background. My institute, which I started in 1992, which focuses on ethnic conflict, we're now 15 years old. We worked for five years in Israel-Palestine, from 1993 to 1998. So I have some background in what we're talking about. I wanted to um, focus initially on the Oslo Accords, and i want to explain a couple of phrases that I want to use. First is what I call Track 1 Diplomacy, that's uh, government to government, that's what I did as a U.S. diplomat for 40 years, and then uh, Track 2 Diplomacy, which is citizen to citizen diplomacy, it's NGO to NGO, it's small group to small group, and it's more uh, risk-taking and um, more innovative, uh, I'm sorry to say, than, than Track 1 is. But all those two phrases I think I'd like you to uh, keep in mind when I start talking about Oslo. A Track 2 process started uh, in 1991, and the three people, two from Israel, one from Palestine, all private citizens, got together outside of the country and began to talk about how would it be possible to bring about a peaceful solution to this conflict which has been going on for so many decades. And they worked uh, assiduously together from time to time. Then a very interesting thing happened. The uh, deputy foreign minister of Norway heard about this uh, informal process at the Track 2 level, and he offered to be of help. And so what he and his government did was to provide um, uh, funds for these people to travel to other places uh, and to meet together uh, in secret, uh, which is rather unusual, but that's what was started. And then gradually, as they got more and more detail, a few more people were brought into the process on each side. And eventually, the leadership was brought into the process. And so the most exciting day of all uh, was on the 13th of September 1993 the highest uh, track one level you could have when on the White House lawn, President Clinton Prime Minister Rabin of Israel and Mr. Arafat of the PLO for the first time in history shook hands with Mr. Clinton bringing them together. That was a high point and that was what we today call the the Oslo Agreement. So that's how it started to move from Track 2 uh, to Track 1. The um, interesting thing is that what they call the uh, the uh, Declaration of Principles and laid out all the basic issues and resolved them in that particular accord. People today talk about the fact that uh, the Oslo Accords uh, uh, were a failure. And um, I totally uh, disagree uh, with that uh, particular condemnation. I think uh, they were a great document. What really happened after Oslo on that uh, fantastic date in 1993? Well, the Prime Minister of Israel was a peace supporter, as was Arafat, and they began to work together, and there was peace in that divided land, when suddenly, unfortunately, on 4 November uh, 1995, Mr. Rabin was assassinated. He was shot in the back by a right-wing Jewish fanatic, a real-world tragedy, as far as I'm What happened next was that uh, Mr. Perez, his uh, friend and supporter of this peace process, was named interim prime minister. uh, And then uh, um, Mr. Netanyahu uh, was elected formally in 1996. And at that point in time, over the next uh, year or two, Mr. Netanyahu, in my opinion, began to pick apart uh, the Oslo Accords and actually destroy them. My vision was that if Mr. Rabin was alive today, there would be peace in Israel and Palestine. So that's what that was a landmark, major disaster in the history of that part of the world.
0: Well, thank you for that um, uh, perspective and that that. That statement about there might have been peace in the Middle East, I remember from the reading that the assassin of President Rabin was widely critiqued by both the State of Israel and uh, Jewish groups around the world. And I mentioned uh, Professor Ziegler last night about um, Ambassador McDonald's perspective on there would have been peace in the Middle East were it not for that. And I'm wondering, Professor Ziegler, if having heard the introduction and Ambassador McDonald's comments. Uh, if you would like to uh, please now make some uh, of you your own opening uh, comments on this uh, subject.
2: Well, John's made a very strong case, and, and I certainly agree with it uh, in general. I think the one flaw that is pointed out in the Oslo agreement is that there was no provision for dealing with Israeli settlements. And from the 1967 war with which you began our discussion on on U.N. Security Council Resolution 242, it never dealt with the idea that a massive program of settlements, there are now 450,000 Israelis living on the territory that was occupied in the 1967 war, and that dramatically changed the whole situation. And what Arafat counted on in the Oslo agreement is that they eventually would get to an agreement that had something to do with the settlement question. And the, the problem that uh, Ambassador McDonald brings out is that Rabin could not deal with the settlers, and they took their revenge on him. that remains the serious obstacle, the most serious obstacle that we have now, because next week we have these talks that are scheduled for Annapolis, Maryland, on trying to reopen this whole peace process once again. But the Israeli cabinet is deeply divided again on the question of dealing with the settlements. And that's the issue that has come up over and over again. John MacDonald is right that various track two efforts have always dealt with the settlement question. But the track one effort has always broken down because of internal divisions on this question, primarily on the Israeli side.
0: Thank you very much. and. Um um, those those uh, perspectives are also captured in, I guess, uh, President Carter's book. I'm wondering f- with for, with both of you, with your, both of your opening comments, there's a um, a question I have generally about uh, President Carter's book uh, um, on this. I know he was widely maligned by certain segments, but there was a book written this year by Abraham Foxman. He was president of the uh, Anti Defamation League. Um, it's um, Calls about the myth of the um, the Jewish lobby, basically, and uh, there's a couple things in his book that I want to uh, mention and ask both of you to comment. One is that uh, in trying to understand why he um, he felt that President Carter, as a world statesman and as a well-regarded and respected peacemaker in the Middle East, in terms of trying to understand why in this book he seemed to, uh, according to uh, Mr. Foxman and others, sort of became a little bit biased on on one side. He felt that the um, ancestry of the the Americans in terms of the European invasion, conquest, occupation, and to some continuing genocide of the uh, Aboriginal peoples is similar historically to what President Carter feels was happening and is happening with Israel and the Palestinians, and he felt that maybe there was some uh, so, uh, empathy by guilt or something. It was an interesting comment on that, and you know, in terms of what's happening in our own backyard, that's the one part I wanted to throw out. The other part was what I found, in, in terms of Mr. Foxman's book, which I found compelling, is a statement that said, notwithstanding any of this, of uh, what our views are, um, I'm going from memory where he says we have to, as a human, race and looking for the next generation, we have to find our common ground, our common purpose and a process that will work for us. I'm wondering if I could uh, ask you, maybe Professor Ziegler, and then go back to Ambassador McDonald just to reverse the order a bit, if you would like to comment on either or both of those uh, comments uh, by Mr. Foxman and President Carter's book.
2: Well, the search for common ground, of course, is well taken. And as Ambassador McDonald brought out, it's not that these people cannot find in principle agreements. There have been intensive talks for years. The most recent ones, of course, have been leading up to this Annapolis summit where we have senior former officials on both the Palestinian side and the Israeli side negotiate great detailed agreements on what can be done. There is a massive amount of successful diplomacy Largely at the informal track two level rather than the track one level on how to manage it. Most people say those people never seem to get along, and that misreads the story that there, in fact, are very intense negotiations which have, in a way, found a compromise on all these great issues. The problem with Jimmy Carter's book is that he's come to the point where he's so frustrated that nothing is done about the Palestinian question, particularly as all the violence mounts over the invasion of Iraq and the anger throughout the Muslim world. And it's like uh, Nelson Mandela once said, the Palestine question is the greatest moral issue of our time. And people try to Put it aside and say that we hope it will go away because it's so difficult but it continues to reinfect international diplomacy and politics because it's not dealt with and there have been great efforts to deal with it it's not as though those efforts aren't there but they've broken down on the question of the politics primarily in the case as I said there are differences very deep differences on the Palestinian side as we see now between Fatah and Hamas but there are even deeper differences on the Israeli side of dealing with this question of how to reach a generous and fair settlement with the Palestinians after coming into the land and establishing the state in the 20s and 30s ending in 1948 with the establishment of a Jewish state and that's remained a huge major obstacle in international diplomacy and it's particularly vigorous one today that's why the Americans are pushing so hard for an agreement now between the Ulmer government and and the abbas government in order to get over this question that the palestinian question remains unresolved anger in the muslim world will continue to rise
0: Thank you. Here we are on uh, 97.9 FM on Chin Radio with our eminent guest, Ambassador John McDonald from Washington and Professor John Ziegler from Ottawa talking about the negotiation processes in the Middle East. And Ambassador McDonald, uh, I'd like you to also uh, deal with the, the question that's posed and you just made me think, uh, Professor Ziegler, that in President Carter's book he did identify, as you've articulated here, that he felt the two main obstacles are the uh, sense of hopelessness of the Palestinian people who feel persecuted and ag- aggravated, but also the continuing violence by people from some of the segments of that community against um, Israel and their citizens. So, uh, in terms of that balance, that's certainly a, a challenge. And uh, before this segment, I want to talk about destabilizers. But Ambassador McDonald, before we talk about destabilizers, could you please, uh, you know, weigh in at this point on these on these uh, matters?
1: Yes, I I, uh, I agree with John. What I would like to uh, highlight are two events that took place in the last few years that really very few people have paid attention to. Uh, in 2002, the Saudi Arabians, uh, at the highest level, for the first time in the 50-year history of this conflict, uh, decided to, to, uh, to weigh in and offered um, in a speech uh, to uh, get together and see if they couldn't agree, and their offer was that um, if there would be a Palestinian state created, that they the Saudis would recognize uh, Israel, which has been a long-standing issue for the Israelis uh, for many decades. Uh, Nothing happened. So then uh, the Saudis convened uh, in Lebanon an Arab summit in which every Arab head of state participated, and they then proposed uh, jointly that same idea to the world. All of them agreed that they would recognize Israel Uh, if a Palestinian was created as a separate state, basically. You know that that, for me, landmark effort on the Saudis' part was rejected immediately, within an hour, by Netanyahu and by President Bush. I thought that was another tragedy. This was a very serious effort on the part of the Arab world. And that was a pure track one effort. The track two effort, which took place a year later, In 2003, something that uh, you may have heard about, Uh, we call it the Geneva Accords, and this was where a group of Israelis and Palestinians uh, at at the track two uh, people-to-people level uh, met in Geneva, Switzerland for some weeks and actually agreed and issued on the 1st of December 2003 uh, the Geneva Accords, which were basically an effort. resolve the various basic issues that have been put out there this too was ignored by track one uh, by israel by the united states and i think that's really very sad commentary because these issues as john has mentioned have been discussed numerous times there's plenty of area for agreement uh, if the political will is put there that's what's really lacking from where i come from this annapolis conference that Secretary Rice and President Bush are calling for uh supposed to take place next week, but they haven't even issued the invitations yet. And uh, the rumor is they're talking about a one-day conference. Well, that's not going to do a thing. Uh, so I, I don't put any uh, credence in the results of the Annapolis-Maryland uh, meeting. Not, I don't consider that a very serious effort, although it's the first time in the Bush presidency that they've gotten that deeply involved publicly. My hope is that the private talks uh, will continue and that, uh, uh, that we will be able to make some progress because people know uh, what uh, the real needs are and what the answers are. The question is, is there a political strength uh, to make those things happen?
0: Well, thank you, Ambassador McDonald. Professor Ziegler, I want to um, uh, have you come back in, but since I'm doing this by phone, it's, it's harder to do the cues here. But um, I want to just pick up on a couple of things you've just said, Ambassador McDonald, as a segue to go back to Professor Ziegler. One of those, you mentioned President Bush, and I I want to remind my listeners, um, our listeners here that back in um, 9-11, 2001, um, Ambassador McDonald, I remember you uh, shared with me, which I was grateful for, a letter that you wrote to the White House to um, warn the— um, the government of your nation to be uh, b- very balanced and um, uh, looking for the long term on on a response in order that the um, the solidarity in the world will be maintained and the uh, uh, the efforts and position in the United States will not be jeopardized. I thought that letter was prophetic in in retrospect on uh, mm-hmm. um, maybe. It- I don't know if who read it, but um, <laughs> but what
1: I
2: uh, never got an answer. I,
0: mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want because resolution two forty two. Now Noam Chomsky was on this show. That was a great honor too, as it is to have both of you as eminent guests, um, and also pr- Professor Galgan. I think from Transcend University in McDonald, Donald, he was uh, he had dinner with you one night, and I had him. He was here in Ottawa at a conference, and he was on the show. Um, I asked both of them the same question. I want to ask this to both of you, and Professor, I don't want to take away any other comments you might have as. We we close off our first segment in a few minutes about what we've just talked about. But let me just read for the listeners the preamble to Resolution 242 and share from a global citizen's point of view. So We all seem to know the statistics are that you know 80% of the, of the population want a non-adversarial solution. Um, I threw out a quote once, you know, war is good business for the few, but peace is better business for the many. Whatever the other agendas are, you know, how do these processes be destabilized for such a few people, especially when you read all of these Um, comments, like the commentary to UN Resolution 242 passed on November 22nd, 1967, starts with uh, from the Security Council, expressing its continuing concern with the grave situation in the Middle East, emphasizing the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war and the need to work for a just and lasting peace in which every state in the area can live in security empathizing further that all member states and their acceptance of the charter of the united nations have undertaken a commitment to act in accordance with article two of the charter and that charter of the u.n talks about it starts with that the next generation shall not suffer the scourge of war so i'm just wondering um uh, how do you take all these words and all these process histories and why do they keep getting stabilized professor Ziegler?
2: Well, you're wise to come back on this date for 242, because there was a controversy, even all the politics about that, and Canada was there on the Security Council when all this took place. And the quarrel became a particular issue about withdrawing from the territories occupied in the war, which is in, in consonance with international law and the Geneva Convention but the israelis worked very hard to make sure that the word withdrawing from the territories was removed from the english language text so all they had to do was withdraw from some of the territory they'd occupied arguing that it was disputed territory not occupied territory and from the very beginning there was that flaw and division in the language because in the other u.n languages the article is there and says "the territories as i said before The key breaking point since 1967 has been the establishment of these 450,000 settlers in colonies now in the West Bank, which was to be made part of the Palestinian state. And that's what the quarrel that's blocking us in Annapolis is still all about. It's interesting, in Jimmy Carter's book, he argues that he had a promise from the then Prime Minister of Israel during the peace treaty with with, uh, Egypt negotiations, at Camp David, the Menachem Begin said that he would withdraw from those settlements. And that's been disputed because he didn't actually have such a commitment from the Israeli prime minister. And what's one looking for now in the Annapolis summit is that Hood Allmert said he won't build any new settlements, but he didn't say anything about stopping the continuing construction in the old settlements, which is what Condoleezza Rice is trying to get him to say. So you see these very important differences over language reflect the political conditions on the ground, which remain deeply divisive.
0: Well, thank you. Reminds me, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was reading about how international lawyers are interpreting these things and it reminds me of getting away from a legal solution to a solutions based on justice. And justice is just us. And um, our, here we are on 97.9 FM on Alternative Dispute Resolution show number 147 with uh, guest ambassador John McDonald from the Institute for multi-track Diplomacy in Washington, Emeritus Professor John Ziegler from Ottawa. We'll come back into our second segment. I want to talk about the role of civil societies and how far or can we go with ADR on an ADR roundtable for the Middle East? Welcome back to segment two of our uh, fascinating topic on the negotiation processes in the Middle East. Are they in accord with the needs of the people? Uh, what happened to the Oslo Accords? Again, we have uh, Professor Ziegler in Ottawa and Ambassador McDonald from Washington on the phone. Uh, and the first segment I found like so compelling in terms of its uh, overall thrust and uh, understanding for general the general population, which this show on Tournament of Dispute Resolution is about, Uh, Understanding at the general population level, what is the role of the general population and citizens in the world? One of the questions I have for both of you is in terms of multi track diplomacy and as you both know, because you can see we both so vital to the um, guidance in the establishment in Aquasaste, the Mohawk Territory, uh, during the Oka Crisis, in fact, during the Gulf War. But in Aquasaste, people remember there was unsolved murders, there was disputes, there was military around, there was 900 police officers from the New York State, Quebec, Ontario, and the Institute for Conflict Resolution, and myself, um, as a consultant, was among the Mohawk people. Uh, Professor Zirka, you called it the Middle East of North America, but one thing I learned what the Mohawk people did uh, was to create an alternative dispute resolution round table, if I can call it, where um, outside of the regular institutions of elected governments and um, um, those formalities, they created an informal table they called the alternative dispute resolution table, which is what I I saw it as, and even people who were uh, considered that should be excluded at that time, including the war society, everyone, all segments of that society were able through shuttle diplomacy, through negotiation, and Tom Colosi's core model of negotiation was involved where every segment, every faction was listened to and heard and they found a way to talk together. And uh, to the surprise of uh, most people, uh, they actually put together a mediation process called and Goa that actually worked for that community. And as I understand, is still the seeds are still working today. So that's one example. So I'd like to ask both of you about the role, because there was a lot of nonprofit groups involved. I looked up Middle East Peace on the Google. There's 46,600,000 entries. So I don't know how much more we can do in another 20 minutes with that. But I could ask both of you about your comments on Civil the role of civil societies. There's there's hundreds of groups in the Middle East working like nonprofit groups, and uh, bringing people to the table who are otherwise excluded. Um, Ambassador McDonough, would you uh, the key
1: uh, uh, word that you have made in that statement was uh, to come together to talk to talk together. Let Mm -hmm. me give you several examples of how it didn't work and several examples of how it did work. Uh, Many of our listeners may know the name Ambassador Dennis Ross. Dennis Ross was appointed by President Clinton to be the Middle East negotiator over Israel and Palestine, and he worked for eight years on that particular issue. After he retired, when Mr. Bush came into office, I heard him make a comment to a small group of people, and he said, you know, I really regret that I made one fundamental mistake. He said, here we were at the government the government level, we were always meeting at a high level, in secrecy. We never told anybody what we were doing. We knew that there were people out there, like uh, my institute, IMPD, and others at the grassroots level who were trying to get people together. We knew that they needed money, they were broke. And I thought about giving them money and recognizing them, but I actually never did in eight years. He said that was my single biggest mistake uh, in my life. In my Period there. My second example has to do with the Y Plantation talks, which took place in the last months of Mr. Clinton's second term. So Y Plantation in Maryland, actually not too far from Annapolis. Uh, the Palestinians and the Israeli delegations came there for two weeks and met with Mr. Clinton and others. And what very few people realize is that during that entire time together, they actually never met face-to-face. The Israeli delegation was in one room, the Palestinian delegation was in another room, the U.S. was in the middle, and they went back and forth. I have a fundamental belief that I have practiced throughout my career, and that is that the only way you solve a conflict at any level of society with your girlfriend or your parents or your kids, on up to internationally. The only way is to sit down face-to-face and talk. That did not happen at the Y plantation, and so progress was not made. So those two examples of track one meeting, but not being particularly effective in the long term. May I continue with a couple of examples of what we did at the people-to-people level? Please do. Well, During the five years that we worked uh, in Israel and Palestine, our goal, of course, was to bring people together and uh, work together with them. Uh, We always worked with three different groups. We worked with Israeli Jews. We worked with Israeli Arabs. Very few people realize there are a million uh, Muslims uh, in Israel as citizens. And we work with the Palestinians. And that is something some people do not understand and make it very difficult to raise money. Actually, as a result of some of our work we were invited by the Ministry of Education of Israel to train uh, their teachers. It was a very lucrative contract and we were tempted because uh, money is always difficult to raise in this field. But we finally turned it down because they wanted us only to work with Israeli Jewish teachers. And we said, no, we have to work with all three groups because if we just work with one, our trust relationship with the other two will be destroyed. And So we actually turned down that uh, particular agreement. There is another example of people living together, uh, which is a very unusual uh, situation uh, in, um, in Israel. and. Palestine. I don't know whether you're familiar with Nebuchadnezzar, but it's it's a group of uh, Israelis and Palestinians that have worked together and lived together for several generations now. And they have brought young people from both sides together in in their community uh, to provide them with training and skill building. So it's a peace effort on both sides uh, in Israel and Palestine has really done magnificent work over the decades. Many, many thousands of people have worked together to try to build a peace process. But uh, they have all been at what we call the the Track 2 level. And uh, they have not been able to move that dynamism and that desire uh, formally into the Track 1 process.
0: Well, thank you for those examples, Ambassador McDonald from Washington. And Professor Ziegler, before I uh, and I'll turn it over to you, so a, co- a thought comes to my mind that I've shared with both of you before that I learned from the, uh, from both of you and from the intervention from Aquasaste. Uh, I tell the story of a house that's in um, uh, disarray. They're fighting in, within a house, and somebody from the room in the house calls out to a neutro who knocks on the door, and the, the person in one of the rooms comes to the door and says, come to my room. Our house is in conflict. And the, the third party neutro said, okay, i got to go visit at other parts of the hills to see other members of the family and this group says no yeah but that's okay but don't go to this room because they're uh, they're the troublemakers and so on so the mediator goes throughout the house and can get into some closets but finds some people in the basement that are huddled in a corner that are considered to be outcasts and they want to be involved with this family and you go back to the room and you say, well, they say, where have you been? I said, well, you know, we've been, you've got other members of the family. There's people downstairs that feel like, oh, we don't need them, but everybody else is here. We're going to have a family reunion. So as they're having their feast, the people that were isolated downstairs and weren't invited blow up the house. Um, <laughs> and I always, I don't know, like that metaphor seemed to work in, the, in that territory. But I'm wondering, Professor Ziegler, in terms of dealing with uh, some examples and how, like when Ambassador McDonald mentioned the assassination, how one person can make a difference, why do the destabilizers have such an impact on the vast majority of people um, that look, are looking for peace? When I was in Lebanon with my wife, Yemna in 2004, I went to Sabra Shatila camp. I have very many Jewish friends. I deal with interfaith leaders all the time. They all were looking for something. Why do such a small minority, can, how can they destabilize these processes?
2: You raise a very important question, Ernie, and it's one that's been much studied the whole business of conflict resolution you put a you put emphasis on the fact that the large bulk of the people really want a settlement we can see this between the israelis and the palestinians anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of the population in repeated polls are in favor of a peace agreement but if you ask them they always say it's the other side you can't do it it's not us and so what you get into is a question that what really dr- changes conflict situations at the family level as well as all the way through small groups to the international level is when violence occurs. Violence transforms every conflict. It's not the same kind of conflict anymore. And if we learn a lesson from the recent experiences of the settlement in South Africa, and more particularly the one in Northern Ireland, you find out it's only when those who were also practitioners of violence were brought into the dialogue that you had any possibility of arriving at a successful agreement what we're doing right now on the annapolis conference is the americans have gotten into the idea with the israelis that the hamas movement which won the palestinian elections is not allowed to be a party to the discussions so you eliminate those who you say because they're violent they're not allowed to be participants in the dialogue when they play critical roles and transform situations It's very important that everyone is included. The British negotiator who finally broke the arrangements on Northern Ireland, who was a conservative minister, has recently argued that Hamas must be included in the Middle East peace negotiations now on the Palestinian-Israeli side. You cannot eliminate people because you say they're terrorists. The trouble with the terrorist argument is most modern war in the 19th and 20th centuries, 21st century as well, takes enormous civilian casualties, far more than the terrorists take, and so you have a problem, and once the level of violence occurs, it is extremely difficult to reestablish dialogue.
1: Ambassador McDonald, did you want to... uh... I absolutely absolutely agree that Hamas has to be a part of the process. They are, as you say, one of the stakeholders. Uh, And if you don't talk to people, (laughs) you never make progress. And, and it, it just cannot ignore them. That is the key thing in this whole process.
0: And I remember you uh, you pointing out a long time ago that in, before 1948, around that time, the British considered certain of the uh, leaders in, in that part of the world for the Jewish community in Israel to be terrorists. Uh, I think the Americans were called terrorists in the revolution, and um, I guess it's a, a, a label you put on, when, when do you become a terrorist and when do you become a freedom fighter? Maybe it depends on the politics of the situation, but um, the... the The notion of an alternative dispute resolution roundtable that we've been talking about where people cannot be brought to a formal table because of institutional or political or as you've often said, Ambassador Donald, peace is too important to be left to diplomats and politicians. Um, We have uh, um, about seven minutes left. So I'd like to um, uh, maybe look at the future in terms of what, based on all of these experiences and lessons and examples that you've been giving. and others that um, other people may know about, uh, what would you um, say about how to create that? I would add the arabic um, that 's the uh, university graduate association. I did a thing on the a d r roundtable just as an ordinary layman. you know ordinary people are trying to do extraordinary things in an extraordinary way, but they need their subject matter experts they need their leaders to to pull it together for us what if I could start with you, Professor Ziegler, with all these sort of general notions and principles and practical historical facts in terms of the common urge for people for this, um, a, a better peaceful uh, life for our next generations, what kinds of things uh, would you recommend to um, the leadership and civil societies as we try to learn from the process history of the Middle East negotiations?
2: Well, that's the most important question of it all, Ernie, and obviously the answer is difficult. The one I would put my finger on most clearly recently is this whole business of defining the self and the other. And what usually happens is you get into a black and white view. We are good and they are bad, and then one is evil in a kind of sense, and any measures can be taken against it. I went to a conference really on the, recently on the great Persian mystic Rumi, who said the other is a mirror who reflects ourselves. And it's this business of the reality of what kind of people are we and how do we deal with the so-called other? Can you see any humanity in the other? And of course, if you can't, then you're essentially into a no-win conflict situation. But the ability to understand that all of us are plagued by the same terrible problems and need to, to use the method of reaching out and trying to understand what the other's grievances are. And I see a specific example of what I'm talking about is that Colin Powell and Tony Blair argued very much with the Bush administration that the path to Baghdad, getting rid of Saddam Hussein, lay through Jerusalem. Unless the Palestinian question were solved You would never deal with all the other problems of the Muslim world, and therefore it was essential. But the neoconservatives argued in Washington that if they just solved the problem in Baghdad, then the Arab-Israeli problem would go away. Well, what we've learned is by the choice of violence, in the case of the Iraqi one, you've just escalated violence and anger everywhere, and it makes the challenge that we're living through now extraordinary for us to try and deal with the need for sympathy and understanding of the other.
0: Well, thank you very much for that. I think that's going to resonate in the hearts and minds of people. Ambassador McDonald, on that, um, on on these principles, uh, could I have some thoughts from you on that? And then I'm going to ask both of you, I want to engage both of you right after this part on the, um, the notion of um, deep mistrust and fear, which I always say, you know, um, don't let mistrust and fear keep you from the table to discuss things. Bring your mistrust and fear to the table. Um, So those are some of the deep-rooted things, I'm sure, uh, with people who categorize, as you say, Professor Ziggler. So Ambassador Don, if you could uh, maybe speak to the issues we were just talking about in principles and maybe, you know, begin a discussion about how do you deal with uh, bringing mistrust and fear to the table? And if I can add one more thing and I want to do this because I don't want to lose the thought is uh, for those of us who are um, just lay people and everything and so to say, well, there's so many other agendas from people like war is big business and you got to keep war going because it's an economy of war or there's other agendas that have nothing to do with the goodwill of ordinary people, has to do with the, um, the uh, good uh, bank accounts of certain uh, elite. Um, that seems to be a sense around the world. I'm just wondering if I could just throw those notions out, Ambassador McDonald, if you can take what you want from there.
1: Well, I'd like to say that I totally agree with what John said, that the, basically what we have to do is touch the heart. People have to realize that the enemy, where they are, have the same hopes and aspirations that you do for a peaceful world. One of the things that we did in 1998, which uh, really was an education. We were able, through friends, to bring together uh, 30 women uh, in, uh, in uh, Israel. Uh, they were about uh, a dozen from uh, Israeli uh, citizens, uh, half a dozen more Israeli uh, Muslims, and the rest were Palestinian. All women. I was the only man, actually, who was allowed to, in the in the room. We had a, a three-day training plan. These women were all leaders in their respective communities. They were all tracked to people. They were all terrific women, important and powerful women in their own respect. They had literally never met together before. The Israeli women had never met, literally, a Palestinian woman or an Israeli uh, Muslim. So there was quite a bit of tension uh, at the beginning. But we gradually worked with that, and then we broke up into small groups where each of the representatives of all three groups uh, coming together to talk in more detail. And I sat on the outside of one small group just to listen to what they were talking about. And they went around their little circle and explained who they were and why they'd come into this circle in the first place and something about their background. And one of the Palestinian women spoke up and she said, Well, I nine months ago, my... Three o'clock in the morning, my door to my house was knocked down. Soldiers came in. They pulled me out of bed. Uh, They took me to prison. They they never charged me with a thing. I was not allowed to make a phone call or contact my family. I was kept uh, incarcerated for five months. And then suddenly released with no explanation. Uh, That was pretty shocking. Uh, Then the the next uh, Alistair woman had the same story in more detail, and she was in prison for eight months. By the time they had finished uh, talking, the Israeli uh, Jewish women were sobbing and asking for forgiveness and said, we never realized that our boys, our soldiers would do that to you. So this was a total lack of communication between that group and between the military and the private citizens of those countries. And I think that is a critical area that we have to address. We want to build a peace process.
0: Well, thank you. It certainly speaks to um, something that's guided me, and both of you have helped me understand, is to humanize the process, to reduce the human and economic costs of conflict, is to realize we are one human family. And uh, Professor Ziger, I wonder if you would like to comment on some of those questions that I was posing about mistrust and fear and how do you get to a table with that. And also I want to add... Uh, we have a few more minutes before I ask you for a vision statement. I want to add another point. I'm sure it's on the minds of everyone around the world, and as you've already alluded to it, is how we allocate resources, not just intellectual, but financial resources. We know, we hear in the news of untold billions of dollars being spent on this and that. If you listen to our Canadian Stephen Lewis, who is so frustrated with the West about not dealing with all the different issues of poverty and things in the world that can be addressed, but why are there so much resources Allocated to these adversarial matters, and as you've mentioned many times, Bass Don, I know professors here we talked about that when there's processes that are there and there's people ready to do it in the vast majority but the funding is not there the funding goes to other places i'm that's a phenomena to me that i think maybe like environmental stuff it's going to have to hit the front burner of the general public we're going to have to demand allocation of resources for these processes so those are some other thoughts professor ziegler we've got a few more minutes here on 97.9 fm as we cl- Going to complete our segment. If you could take a couple of minutes on those points, and then if you could, I follow that up with uh, Professor Ziegler with any vision statement you would give to, for your own views, for the general public, for the world leaders about that. And then Ambassador McDonald. So I don't lose any more time. I can ask you to, um, you know, take it from there, and uh, I'll have a minute at the end. So Professor Ziegler,
2: let me be brief, Ernie, because you've raised a lot of very important questions whenever one is faced with such bad news everywhere as we seem to be in the present period this is an extremely dark period after the end of the the cold war one searches rapidly for some simple explanation that will explain all the confusion and disarray and i think history is so complex and diverse the search for a single factor is probably a mistaken thing to do There are so many factors that operate you eventually raise the cost of uh, operations and people making money, and that's certainly one of the factors, but it doesn't, cannot be reduced to that. It has to be all of the factors at once considered. And when you try and come to some common understanding of how to escape from the dilemmas of the human condition, about the only set of values that I can find will stand up for us over and over again is the need for compassion and understanding and helping others rather than more search for enemies and escalation of violence.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Ziegler. Ambassador McDonald.
2: Well, I think a key issue is
1: leadership. We have to have people in power who track one, who are respected and have the guts and the courage to take the difficult decisions. That uh, We had that uh, in 1993, and uh, I don't think we've had it since that time. And too often, politicians and political the elected people are looking for a quick fix on their own watch, and obviously this conflict doesn't uh, match that, uh, that approach, because you need patience, and you need skill, uh, and you need a little money. I am totally convinced in my philosophy that every conflict in the world can be resolved. So I continue to have hope for this particular conflict. Uh, once we have the political will and the leadership and the willingness to meet face-to-face, I think we can make
0: well, those are um, uh, fabulous points, and I want to thank uh, both of you for the guts and courage to uh, be on the show with me today, uh, coincidentally on the anniversary of the Resolution 242, November 22nd. I want to thank both of you for extraordinary leadership, uh, maybe not as well-known to the world as it should be. Uh might be appropriate, Professor Ziegler, if uh, you want to comment on this. I was honored to be on a committee where you nominated Ambassador John McDonald for the Nobel Peace Prize.
2: I'm glad you brought it up. It's a, good to get it out in the world. John was extraordinarily and remains enormously deserving of that high award. Well, thank you very much for the strong support from both sides.
0: <laughs> and, you know, and uh, my wife, Hume and I uh, thank you again, uh, uh, John, for you and your wife, Crystal, wonderful hospitality when we were there last year when your grandson uh, initiated that uh, program at the university, the American University. In Washington, and I I was facilitated the panel. But you were so hospitable, and um, uh, your hospitality for both of you, from your hearts and your souls and your minds, is really comes through. One thing I think you learn on the radio, you can feel that uh, that genuineness um, among both of you, and I. you make me think, you know, that it's, a, it's Pandora's box and you know, all the ills and the evils. And isn't it true that the last thing in Pandora's box after all the evils and the ills of the world were out there, the last thing was hope. And the, uh, I've been listening to both of you and seeing this life journey that you've taken and how you've helped people that, um, for me anyway, you've helped put that antibiotic of hope out there. And I know from all the religious leaders and political leaders and ordinary citizens that you we interact with that... Um, You've touched the uh the real spirit, and as the Mohawk leader said once back in Akwesasne, you might remember uh john um both of you um he said each culture is like a flower, one day the world should be a beautiful bouquet <laughs> and uh you know we have a ripple effect, both of you have had a ripple effect um I haven't minute here, so thank you for letting me sort of ramble on a bit, but you're really uh you really moved me to uh to feel really affirmed and everything. And uh, so I believe that each ripple can become a wave the wash away unresolved conflict from the shores of injustice, and you both have been those ripples, and you've created a wave of thinking here. So thank you very much, Emeritus Professor John Ziegler, Ambassador John McDonald from Washington, for helping us think through the negotiation process in the Middle East, and may we go far with ADR for the future for the next generations. Thank you both very much.
1: Thank you, Ernie. Thanks, Ernie.